Okay, welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, uh, coming to you live, as it were, from Stockholm in Sweden. And it's only appropriate that I should have my good friend with me, Zap. How are you, Zap? Uh, still alive, as usual. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're here to talk about The Martian. This is a special show because I'm recording it live in, uh, as I say, Stockholm. There's only the two of us, um, but I just thought it was a great opportunity to, uh, to do the show. And I thought it was a great opportunity to talk to you uh, in person. Now, Zap. This is a, a film, before you get into the visual effects, it comes from a book. And yes. the book was, the book had its own actual really interesting evolution, didn't it? Yes. So the, the author that wrote it, uh, uh, Andy Weir, he started as a, basically a blog. So he wrote, wrote it online, chapter by chapter, uh, basically on a lark. And, you know, people started following this and reading the chapters and even giving him tips to, to uh, um, you know, things he could change or update ideas. So he wrote all these uh, chapters online and when the book was already online, people started asking, hey, could, I, I want it on my Kindle. How can I get my Kindle? So he put it up on Amazon. I think for the minimum amount you can. Right, right? Like for like the minimum, because he, he didn't, wasn't thinking of making money yeah. or anything. He just wanted to get the book out there, but you had to charge some money. Yeah. Uh, so he put it up on Amazon and wham, we have a bestseller. And the rest, as they say, is history. I love the idea that these uh, actual rocket scientists started giving him information about it. Now, I haven't read the book, so I'm very keen to ask you this question. How much is the book just a, an essay in the practicalities of pulling it off? And how much is it a dramatic story that has character? Oh, the book has got plenty of character. Because oh, the cool thing with the book is that it's... Not completely, because we kind of go over to the Earth side, but it's mostly Mark Watney's diary that he, uh, you know, talks into the microphone, basically. Uh, and oh, he's a sarcastic bastard. Now, here's the thing. I've, one criticism I read of the film, and I should say I love the film to death, but one criticism I heard was that if uh, they'd not shown you Earth's point of view until mark on mars connected with earth it would be more dramatic in other words if we'd been unaware of what was happening as he was and then when he finally does connect you know he kind of tears up and mm -hmm. it's just amazing that we'd have sort of shared that a bit more emotionally with him did that how the book ran or the book is a little bit more like that in the sense that the book but it's not completely like that the book literally uh, Pardon my French, but the opening words of the book are, I'm fucked. Right. Uh, because it's his first log entry when he just, uh, you know, gotten into the hab yeah. uh, after surviving. Right. And he tells you what happened, basically. Uh, so in the film, we see it. Yeah. But in the book, you're told about it by Mark. And, uh, it, you know, it, it goes from there. So it's really his log entries for quite a long time until we finally get this first glimpse of NASA, which is quite fateful in the film, where uh, they're basically talking, should we image this place again? What if we see his dead body? So they have intentionally avoided, because NASA is a public domain organization, yep. everything they, every byte of data gets put online for anyone to watch. It's not like they can look at it and hide it away if it was nasty. Right. So that's why they wait so long. And when they finally dare to point the camera there, they're like, what the hell, that thing has moved and that... And they realized immediately, like, holy crap, he must be alive. Because, of course, what 
they thought killed them was the antenna and without the antenna well he can't talk to you right because that's what what got stuck in his chest basically a piece of the antenna and without the antenna communication doesn't really work okay well, we'll get on to the visual effects in a second but the one that that tweaked me from a plot point of view was I, I accepted everything except for where the heck is he getting all the power to run right so the, the book the book is much more technical than the film was. Yeah. Uh, the book does math of what hours and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and that's one of the okay, big but, but problems. Not having read the, the book. book, let me articulate the problem, right? Right. We know that he goes to the old rocket site to get the hydrogen to burn with oxygen so as to make water for his potatoes. All yeah. good. We also know that he has solar rays mm -hmm. and that those solar panels are producing energy yes. during the daylight hours, but obviously they're not some mega new solar technology because he, when he's going away with the Mars vehicle, he can't go for very long in a day. So we know those solar panels aren't somehow like 10,000 times more clever than the ones mm -hmm. we have today. But he has to make oxygen on the planet mm -hmm. and he can only make oxygen on the planet because he can't take enough with him. Uh, to take carbon dioxide and turn it into O2 and carbon monoxide. But that requires power. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, so, where's the power coming right. from? So if he had a nuclear power source, he wouldn't need the solar panel. Exactly, which is the interest. What I think is weird both in the book and the film, he digs up their little nuclear yep. RTG, which for some reason he can't use for power. I don't remember what the story is in the book because it's meant for some other purpose and I don't even, whatever. Hand wavy, he can't use it on. for I mean, plot reasons. I don't well, well, but I've walked in a the, studio with a thousand cameras and a thousand cables and not been able to get a monitor to work, right? It is conceivable that on the planet he just can't con configure it. Exactly. So the thing in the in the book is that he has a lot lots of solar panels there's like uh, he has quite a bunch and he can't take all of them in the, the film makes it seem like he has like five of them and he yeah. brings all of them but the whole point a big point in the book how many of the solar panels can i actually stack on the rover and he does math to figure out i need this many of the like he has like 50 but there's no place to put them he can take maximum 11 or whatever right and that's the whole so thing. solar power that he's using to yeah. Because cause the oxygen requirements is the, you know, I mean, I'm all very well that he could have a fair amount of oxygen, but enough oxygen to burn mm -hmm. constantly uh, to, to form the uh, H2O just yeah, was like, yeah. wait a second. Yeah, I don't know how, how, you know, how in detail that math works out. And I mean, he talks in the book a lot about his oxygenator, the thingamajig that basically makes the oxygen by pulling it out of the atmosphere somehow or whatever. I don't remember the details. I mean, we, and apparently we, this is kind of a part of a magical technology because I think this uh, alleged oxygenator doesn't really exist. Well, no, no, you can, you can, you can get carbon dioxide and go to, to oxygen and carbon monoxide. Right. And we'd happily do it here on Earth mm -hmm. to solve our O2, uh, like a carbon dioxide problem on Earth, except for the fact that we'd have to make more CO2 burning coal or whatever mm -hmm. um, than right. we'd ever... So it would just be a negative sum yeah. game. Um, obviously, if you did have a world that was running primarily on nuclear, you could set up a lot of um, systems that would therefore take O2 out of the... And, but you just produce a lot of carbon monoxide, and as you know, that's poisonous. Hey, um, okay, so let's say that's the tech under control for a second, and, and there are some other bits, but... Pretty much, it's pretty good. One of the things I must say about the movie was fairly long, like two yep. plus hours. 
uh, it didn't feel long to no. me, and especially as a person who's read the book, because there's plenty missing from the book. He goes through quite a lot of additional ordeals oh, really? in the book. Uh, for instance, one key thing uh, in the book is that he, he gets, you know, he goes and gets the Pathfinder yeah. to be able to communicate. And during uh, this thing, he's supposed to drill holes in the rover to get the stuff in, which they... They show him the hole drilling thing, but he never explained why in the movie. That like gets lost, like, oh, he needed holes in it. That's really important because he has to put stuff in there. That's why he needs to drill the holes. While he's drilling the holes, he's using an electric drill, which he has rigged up with some extension cables, and he screws up because he, he basically leans this against Pathfinder and shorts the thing out, which means he loses communication again in the book. They have communication for a while, but he blues it, he fries his, right. which is a key point that during his entire journey, he has no communications and he's journeying straight into like a dust storm. So there's this whole second dust storm, which isn't really bad, but it reduces the solar amount. Oh, yeah. So he can't charge as quickly, so he won't make it. And they're standing there on the ground and they basically have to tell him, don't go there instead of there. And he doesn't know. So that's another plot point in, in the book, totally missing from the film. And actually at one point when he's driving along, he actually tips over the freaking rover and has to write it up again. And all these things. So the whole like drive from the hab to the... the that was like, oh, then I but drive. They sound, like, there, you know? they sound like hurdles that yeah. we didn't suffer by not having. Right? No, like, not really. But it's like there, there are, there's even more excitement in, in, in the book. Yeah. And the whole thing, of course, narrated by a very sarcastic uh, Mark Watney, you know, who's... Uh, and I must say, I listen to the audiobook. Uh, oh, yeah. I throw in a plug here for Audible because I love audiobooks. And they got a perfect guy to read it yeah. because he has this sarcastic tone. Can I just uh, say, I think the film was made by Matt Damon. It was, he yes. Was he so... was so good. You were so rooting for him. Yes, absolutely. And his, his even though like, it goes kind of loopy there, when it starts to, you know, technically this is maritime rules. So I'm yeah. actually a space pirate. <laughs> so it's like, even that was really, really funny. Yeah. But yeah, the I don't know. I just for me, he he just gave a terrific performance because yeah. you want him to be um, heroic in the way that you imagine that somebody that they're sending up to Mars would have gone through psychological testing, right? They're mm -hmm. not going to send up someone that's you know like a basket case because you know they're going to be traveling for a long period of time. And why wouldn't you select somebody good, right? I mean, you, yeah. you know, you've got a lot of candidates that would be willing to, to go to Mars. You'd have a good screening process. But you don't want him to be superhero good, like no, in, everything comes to him In the book, he's, of course, the botanist. He's the best botanist yeah. on the planet. But everybody has two jobs. So he's also the electrical engineer, which, is, of course, helps him out. That's uh, why he can fix and do st a lot of stuff. They kind of forget that part that he's actually electrical engineer also in, in the movie because there's a lot more going on with the math of amps and volts and stuff in, in the book. Yeah. That's I, hardly I, mentioned at I, all. I, I did in, in occur the to me that it was very convenient that everything had the right voltage and the yeah, right Yeah, it does not in the book. So a power adapter is a key plot point like I need this voltage to go to that thing right. and the connector doesn't match and it's the wrong voltage okay. and that's like one of the yeah all right so let's change gears now and discuss it from a VFX point of view so what did you think uh, I'm pretty much speechless this is gonna be the shortest VFX show ever because it's just freaking perfect. Well, I... let, let me tell you a couple of things about it then that you may not be aware of, because um, I was. And so for a start, they had a fairly short 
post signature on this. And then they shortened it. Um, so they ended up with, I think, I'm going to say 20 weeks in post. Like it was just a ridiculous amount of time. Now, the, the work was split between two companies. Framestore did the um, really great work up on the, um, on the ship, you know, where obviously they're up in deep space and they've got uh, zero gravity, all that kind of stuff. And then MPC was doing all the stuff down uh, on Mars in terms of what was going on. Okay, so got a shortened, uh, reduced section of time for doing stuff. Then... Uh, they were shooting in stereo with two red cameras. Really nice material, except for the fact that they also had these GoPros. And the GoPros were shooting stuff, which is fine, except for the GoPro stuff was only meant to appear on monitors. And then they decided that they would use the GoPro footage. So now they had to intercut between red dual 5K, they were 6K cameras, but shooting in 5K. So 5K dual stereo to a single source GoPro lens, which is, of course, you know, like H.264. I mean, you know this better than anyone, right? Like, it's just, there's no color space. That we're talking about uh, the gamma is baked in. I mean, there's just like endless amounts of problems, right? Apart from chromatic aberration, the lens on that sucker is like designed to be like a 300 buck lens, you know, versus the red cameras that have got these like mammoth things on them. Okay, so there's that, there's a problem, right? And then, um, and, and I, I think it's valid, but it, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm gonna stick my neck out here and say, it's also like stark raving mad. They said, the gravity on uh, Mars is considerably less than the gravity that we're used to on Earth. Now, it's, yeah, not, it it's not moon level bouncing around, but it is different. Yep. So we'll shoot off speed, and we'll shoot off speed because then we can change the speed, and it'll give him a slightly sort of more weightless property when he's... Because, um, you know, you'll often shoot slow motion mm -hmm, to make yeah. it look like it's weightless. And so somebody works out that about 32, 35 frames a second is the right frame rate played back at 24, it slows it down enough that he looks like he's kind of walking around outside and bouncing. And let's face it, there's not a lot of dialogue when he's outside walking around, right? Like it's not lip sync dialogue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that sounds like a really good idea. Except you can't actually sync red cameras at that odd frame rate. You can only sync them at 24 or 48. So they shot at 48. So they're shooting stereo 48. They have to retime down to this 32 or 35. Now, optical flow is really good, but optical flow doesn't produce stereo-accurate pair speed-ups. So what happens is you've got the footage and you speed it up with an optical flow. Mono looks pretty good. If you stop it on a frame, it has a bit of tearing and a couple of other weird things going on, but you don't kind of notice it in a film clip or whatever. In stereo, they don't tear the same because they're obviously offset by the interocular distance between the two eyes. So, so it doesn't easily retime. So they have to retime all these shots to make them actually work properly. And, and there's a lot of stuff that has to be retimed and you have to retime it so it's stereo, high res, accurate, perfect alignment. Wow. And then <laughs> they decided they couldn't shoot anyone with visors because of several reasons. Firstly, you'd have problems hearing audio Secondly, you'd have the reflections of the studio and the crew and the lens and everything. So everybody that's walking around outside that's being shot, by the way, at 35 frames, that actually it's 48, doesn't have a visor in front of them. And so even though you've got this bit that's like theoretically live action, that looks 100% like you're shooting down, not looking up into the sky, you haven't got to the sky yet, but just looking down at a couple of actors talking to each other, and you'd think that's 100% in camera, the poor VFX guys had to put visors on both of them and then put the correct reflections in the visors. But they don't have a camera for that, right? So they end up having to rebuild an entire normal two-shot out when they're just sort of walking around, you know, or 
uh, at the very beginning, or obviously later on when he's walking around, and they have to create the environment in 3D just to get the reflection on his visor and put a visor in uh, where it doesn't exist. And, uh, and that was all on 48 frames, retimed to 35 in stereo, intercut with the odd shot that's just coming off a red camera in H.264 um, in, uh, you know. So, I mean, I, I know for a fact that the guys at GoPro were super helpful in um, letting them try and get as much as possible into the codec. But nevertheless, they weren't custom cameras. They got some good product placement. All they didn't say GoPro on them. Oh, like everybody Yeah, no, no, I mean, they were totally happy to do whatever they could. But yeah. nevertheless, like it was the brief the you know that we want to use the GoPros is that they would be, you know, what was ever there would go on a monitor and that would make sense, right? You know, make some really great stuff. And also it would make sense you'd have some kind of camera there that would film things. But not so that's what they were trying to do. Oh and by the way, it's shot in Jordan where they had some really nice blue skies and, and puffy white clouds and stuff. So they didn't want to, or they didn't have the budget after having had the problem solved of the 35 frames, 48, and the visors to do roto on every shot for the sky. But luckily, they actually came up with a plug-in, like a gizmo for um, Nuke, that was called uh, Earth to Mars, that basically did a... So you know how if you're keying some footage... So for those of you that, that are listening that aren't compositors, if you're keying a green screen shot, obviously one of the things you could do is you could kill the green. And you might hear somebody saying that, like you put a, a, a wall in where there had been a green screen or a view of a, a field, whatever you want, and you would kill the green spill. And so the way that that would be done back in the day is you would suppress the green. But you don't actually want to suppress the green. What you actually want to do is hue shift it because what you want to do is have the correct colours of the field, the wall, whatever. If the wall is like red behind you, you actually want there to be some red radiant light falling on the people uh, in the foreground. So if there was green on their edges, now you want to shift that round to be, uh, to be red. And so it's basically that keying technology in a special gizmo written by the MPC guys that allowed them to do almost every sky replacement in Jordan as a non-rotoed fix. It was the only sort of gift of tech god kindness <laughs> in an otherwise severely cruel, schedule-reduced spectacularly good piece of visual effects work it's absolutely spectacular i i'm just sitting here my jaw on the floor because i knew nothing of all of these things you speak of uh, so i just go wow uh, i don't even understand how they did this because there's not a thing in this movie that looks in any way off or wrong um, the absolutely only criticism i had uh, which surprises me when you say they actually did shoot it in stereo because I saw, and maybe this retiming explains some, but uh, I saw some weird stereo things in a couple of places. Okay, so where... you should say that because I was going to get to that. It, well, let's jump there, right? So mm -hmm. if I was going to give my criticism, there's an early, early panning shot that's going from left to right of the Mars terrain, mm -hmm. where I swear there was just like wrong stereo resolution. Exactly. I, we're probably talking about exactly because there's, because I would assume this was CG or a model or whatever. It's like that they should be able to do. I mean, CG can you do stereo? Obviously, and model you could shoot with the stereo. It wasn't pattern, models, yes. but what or, it was was they they were shooting in Jordan and. Uh, a fair amount of stuff in front of them was live action. And then they'd add extra bits from things that they'd filmed. And then, of course, depending... Oh, I'm, I'm now assuming, of course, that it's not the big on storm of stuff. 
if it isn't the storm stuff, and the stuff I'm referring to wasn't storm, it was no, uh, pretty no. pictures at the beginning, yep. then the sort of medium to distance stuff is, I'm going to call it CG, might be photography remapped onto mm -hmm. geo, but you know what I mean, like yep. uh, artificial. And, and I think there's just a horrendous stereo fuck up. Man. Yeah, there was something like the far thing was, yeah. it was like... There's a mid-level thing that was it's at the a wrong stereo thing, place. Yeah. Yeah. It, you're probably talking about exactly the same shot. Yeah, I was really surprised uh, about that. And, yeah. and when I first saw it at that point, I went, wow, that's unusual for a stereo conversion to get something wrong. And in fact, there was, a, I think, a couple of stereo conversions, but almost entirely it was not, other than the GoPro footage, which of course mm -hmm. had to be yeah. stereo converted. Um, and I, obviously some of that stereo stuff, like when it's he's sitting in front of the monitor, it's meant to look like a, you know, him giving a, mm -hmm. uh, a dialogue, that stuff, yeah, okay, well, that's just the, the way it is. But there are some other shots in the film, um, some as you wouldn't know, one that you would probably guess, you know, when the, um, the habitat blows mm -hmm. and that whole unit flips, that's a stunty in a rig in a tube and there's GoPro footage in there um, because you don't want to crash a couple of red cameras on a stereo rig flipping mm -hmm. it upside down. Um, and I guess that that would be no, that have been the case. But yeah, there's some, a couple of other shots apparently where it just intercuts like just exactly mm -hmm. perfectly. And, um, and I didn't have that kind of, it wasn't like, remember in uh, episode one of Star Wars where they suddenly, or two, whatever one it was, when they suddenly goes on about the midichlorians and it was like, whoa, that shot looks horrible. And you discover later that they'd done a test of an HD insert. Yeah. I didn't have any of that in this mm -hmm. film. No, 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 no. Um, so I think Down on Mars uh, was really good. Um, I, I don't think I was aware of this sort of lesser gravity when they're walking around outside. Um, that they sort of added, but I, I don't actually know, I probably should, how much the gravity actually is on Mars, do you know? Is it? Uh, not off the top of my head. It's significantly different, it, but not yeah, like a Yeah, it's probably like a moon. more different than they tried to, to, to make it appear. It, it's not the moon bouncy thing, yeah. as you said, but it's apparently it's fairly significant, so you would need to behave a little weirdly uh walking around speaking of gravity by the way the only other thing that i would even begin to criticize visual effects wise and it's not really the effects per se but some of the zero gravity stuff up in the ship yep. looked a little i can tell you're on a wire kind of thing it was not horrendously bad in any way for me it, was it wasn't so much that it looked like it was on a wire it felt staged Right. So yeah. it was like, I, I didn't so much say, oh, I can see, because, you know, they do that thing where their hands come in where they're missing the wires and they go out and bad yeah. wire yeah. work. I didn't get that. I just got that camera seems a little, dare I say, locked off or it's mm -hmm. a bit, it felt a little like tight, constrained or contrived. Yeah, and also they did a thing where they like were like flipping around, going down through yep. this little tunnel where they basically were flying in a curve in the yep. air in the kind of how did they... You go in a straight line around your center of gravity when you're in zero G. You can't randomly turn. But this is super, we're super nitpicky here. It's, for most normal people, it probably looks completely fine. But if you've seen enough actual zero G, you, you can tell, you can really feel that everything is in a straight line with the center yeah. of gravity. I mean, I think it's interesting that frameworks didn't um, go down the path of doing the gravity um, style. Yeah. Yeah, because you know that in the film Gravity they did the uh, the box with the lights, mm -hmm. uh, and they didn't go down that path. I thought, I thought on the whole it looked uh, good in the ship. There were a couple of shots as if to say, 
we know that there'd be zero gravity, but because of the, um, you know, the ring, the 2001 mm -hmm. solution, um, it's okay to not have it, but we're going to not cheat you by not showing you them. Like it almost like the audience would be really upset if you didn't have some zero G stuff happening. I guess the question comes, if I was going now, still VFX, what did you think of the uh, rescue stick my knife in my finger sequence? Yeah, I don't recall that actually being in the book, by the way, the, the, the I want to fly like Iron Man. Yeah, but, but, but not, not from a narrative, like from a... Right. No, no. Um, but I, yeah. See, for me, it wasn't high con enough. I think if you're in deep space, right, is it, and, and this is not yeah, a... Yeah, that's a good point. I, if you're in deep space, it would be super high con, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. But sure. you are close to the planet at that point. So yeah. theoretically, there's a giant disc that's bouncing light up. Yeah. So it may be my perception, but I love NASA-y footage where you get this really glary, really harsh light mm -hmm. and some of him going around her being pulled in, I just it's felt... It's a little too pretty. Yeah, you get a good point. I didn't, uh, I, I, I bought that actually. I didn't think about that, but you're, you're right. It's a funny thing with space, as I think we mentioned on some other space film we discussed, but there's this error in the brain that people do thinking that space is dark because here on Earth, we only see space when it is dark yep. because there's a whole planet blocking out the sun, which otherwise, you know, erases space. So we have this mental idea that is dark in space when in actuality, it's the brightest sunlight you ever saw all the time. Yep. So it's always this super harsh, super like the worst beach you can ever think of trying to do photography there and even delete the, you know, the, the light from the sky. So you will always have this super harsh lighting unless you have something. Yeah, I mean, to I mean let's face off. it, this film was like a hundred thousand percent better than our classic Star Trek thing, where in Star Trek, they're in the middle of nowhere and the, there are all these terrific <laughs> bounce lights um, lighting up the ship. But I, but then by the same token, in those films, there are aliens and they can travel faster than the speed of light. So there's a, quite a few other laws of physics that are kind of bending. But I guess for me, like when, um, when they're mucking around with uh, trying to catch things um, that are coming. So you have like a, a guy in a suit in a space docky kind of area on the ship and he's sort of standing there. It should either be, you know, very dark, dark or very bright, bright. Mm -hmm. And it was a bit too much ambient light. And then some of it says, oh, well, that's because there were lights on the outside of the spaceship. And I, for one, can't see any reason why any NASA engineer is going to put a whole lot of lights on the outside of a spaceship, right? It's not like, like as I'm going past the other spaceships, I want to make sure they can see me so they don't run into me in the middle of, the, uh, of Mars. Or, you know, it's important that there's a green one on the left and a, you know, and a red one on the, because otherwise you wouldn't know which way to pass. Um, there just doesn't seem to be any logical reason for having external illumination on spaceships. No. So you are just going off the planet bounce or the sun. And mm -hmm. I would have thought that it would be so glary. And occasionally you do get that really nicely done in a film. And it just feels just, there's like halation and a real. Now, is that to the other big one, which is totally the case for every single film is that there's never a reason why you'd have lights in your helmet. <laughs> no, of course. If That's you're trying to go around every, in space... Every film, un, be it underwater but, and in space, yeah. of course they have the beauty lights in the helmet, which makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, because you just you can't see a bloody thing, right? No. I mean, try walking around outside at night and get your iPhone 
and switch the light torch on and just stick it in your face. I mean, you can't even see where you're walking, right? Exactly. The last thing in the world you do, but you're right, from abyss to any film you can think of, people have lights in their helmets and... Uh, and they did in this yeah, one. I because, think that's the thing we'll have to basically give Hollywood. Yeah, because it's, it's so. That's but so, but there's a, this fine line, though, isn't it? Because I, I totally don't call them out on that one because I accept that I'm going. To the, I want to see Matt's face. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm then the audience. I want to see what's going on. It's not a documentary. I want to see him, but by the same token, I want my space stuff to feel a little grittier, maybe mm -hmm. just a little glarier. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, what did you think of the storm thing? The storm thing, uh, I think I thought it was really beautiful. Unfortunately, technically, it's one of those things that probably couldn't really happen on Mars because apparently uh, they tell me that the density of the air on Mars is actually so low, so you wouldn't be able to get that amount of pre pressure, that amount of air mass, so it would mean any significant danger to the ascent vehicle. So this whole premise, which is of course the premise of the book, that the ascent vehicle should tip over, could never happen. And they even pointed it out to him as he was writing it, like, you know, you know this can't happen. He said, well, I need the beginning to my book. Yeah, so, you yeah know. But, but don't you think, I mean, I thought those little vortexes and things, they were like really gorgeous. They were beautiful, were just... absolutely beautiful, and they tell me those won't happen either. But God, okay, the volumetrics okay, no, no, were fantastic, beautiful. Okay, the only thing I'm going to say here is that we need to clarify um, can't happen because since I saw the film, they discovered the water, salty kind of seepage stuff that's mm -hmm. happening. And by the way, I thought this was so cool. NASA um, apparently um, won't allow any probes to go anywhere near that because they can't work out how to decontaminate an, any Earth probe to the point. So if there are any microbes on there, they want to make sure that they're not introduced by the vehicle. And I think it's like so cool. It's like, like, what do you do? It's like a catch-22, right? Like, right, so they want to find water on Mars, but now when they did find water on Mars, uh, did that screw up? <laughs> Can't they go to Mars anymore now? Because yeah, I mean, what, water how does there. that work? How, does that, how do you get around the problem? That, yeah, uh, I bet that, you know, this is some old treaty from the 60s that they based this on, and I guess they might decide, uh, let's skip this 60s. Who, who cares about it? Well, no, I think 60s. it's a good idea, right? Like, I mean, it, it's conceivable they'll work out some way of doing it. But, um, I, I mean, yeah. Anyway, so my point was that that what you think is fact, it's, mm -hmm. it's the yeah. black swan effect, right? Yeah. Like everyone in England said that swans were only white right up until the second they turned up in Australia and found black ones. And then the moment they did that, they were like, okay, well, they are in fact yeah. white and black swans. True, true. So it's true up until the second that it isn't. But anyway, having said that, um, whether it's true or not, it felt... Um, like for me, the Mad Max storm felt storm of God, and it was a bit too kind of Tenth uh, Commandment-ish for my taste um, in a film that was otherwise pretty gritty. In this one, it didn't feel like that. The storm had an evil kind of gritty danger to it, but it never felt like it was... It looked for sure more real. I mean, the, the Mad Max one was, yeah, it was... Dare I say more stylized, in or like yeah, yeah, it was had this biblical epicness over the topishness. This one was much more felt, more grounded and realistic. Yeah, we could have had Charlton Heston with a staff in front of the Mad Max one. In this one, it was exactly <laughs> it was uh, you know ripping you to shreds. I, I mean, the only thing I did think in the movie, and again, this is not a visual effects thing, is that having had that storm. I don't know I would have wanted to pitch my future on just a bit of plastic over the end of the uh, habitat. That's quite a, 
another thing that is quite different from his repair is much more thorough than you know duct tape and and uh, the whole thing, how he managed to glue it back together, is a whole ordeal also in the book. And they use Habicam as the, the, the habitat in the book is actually basically like an inflated dome made out yeah. of canvas. And he has a batch of, bunch of repair canvas so they could fix leaks. And he has glue to glue this all together, but uh, he doesn't apparently have enough to cover the hole. So you actually have to rearrange the entire thing and make it smaller and a bunch of stuff just to be able to glue it back together. Right. And yeah, so yes, the duct tape thingy was, you know. So in the visual effects realm for a second, at the end of the um, story before he leaves the habitat, we see him getting out of a shower having shaved and, and uh, he's obviously been surviving on much smaller rations. So he's pretty... Um, well, he's, you know, amazing. Skinny. Yeah. Um, what do we think of that? Because most of that was body doubled. I, I would assume it was a body double. But because... not, there's a front shot that wasn't. That I'm, mm -hmm. I can't remember who did it. I presume it was NPC. But there is one shot at the front. And apparently Mark is just really a super fit guy. Mm -hmm. And he's got killer shoulders and killer biceps. And there's a shot at the front where it's his arms shrunk. And I, I was... I was looking at it thinking, oh, that towel just says body double from the back. But there is one shot from the front that they couldn't get away from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good solution, right? We well, don't need to see... I mean, having the towel allowing you to have a sort of a merge line, I mean, it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, and, of course, need... showing it from the back where it was, as you say, clearly a, a, a double... It leads your mind into thinking he's really skinny, and the the front shot. I I remember thinking about that, and I don't think he was quite as skinny from the front. It was clearly he was shrunk down, but you, if you were to compare him from behind and from the front, you know, then maybe he they, they did as much as they could, but they didn't go into crazy territory. See, I think but they already the, sold that the fact he was skinny from the yeah, other view, you know, they, so they, they, his cheeks, right? They they sunk his cheeks a little bit mm -hmm. in that sequence, but I'm pretty sure, I don't know, I, this is speculation. It didn't feel like they kept that up for the rest of the film. It was almost no. like they went, he's skinny, now he's in the suit, and with a classic piece of movie magic, uh, we don't really kind of notice anymore that his face isn't as skinny as it maybe was a moment ago because you know, it's a bit yeah. of makeup and we're okay and, and he's in a spacesuit to the end. But um, I've got to say, I think that's totally appropriate. I think if you are staring at his cheeks, trying to find cheek continuity, you're not enjoying the film and you should, you know, get a life. And that yeah, would be, that and, would be me. And you know, this is, a, this is a classic trick also in film. Uh, my my uh, good friend Trey Stokes always uh, calls this the footprint in the snow moment. And that is a thing from Star Wars in that there's one, exactly one shot in all of Star Wars when one of these walkers yeah. uh, sets down a foot in the snow and makes a footprint. So you really see the snow contact. And the rest of the time, it's always out of frame. They solve it some, some way, right? So you know this thing is there and it's stomping around in the snow in your head, but they never actually shown it. They do it once, but never again, basically. So, so you introduce that he's skinny, and then your brain thinks he's still skinny, but he's not really. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, because there are, there are things that work in films and things that don't. And I mean, I think, personally, that's exactly what, it, what you should do. You should have a really good establishing shot yep. and then go in for the close-ups and not need to keep having these epic shots. I find it offensive when directors insist on having a shot because, quote, no one will ever know how we did it 
or just to sort of prove that there was no yes. trick being used. And it's like, you shouldn't. You should do whatever works for the story. I should be so interested in the story that once I've had the establishing shot, I'm just there. I'm like, I understand the geography. I understand the layout. You shouldn't just keep doing it to prove, which would be the fly-in from the big way-out shot just to kind of have a magic camera just because you can. Mm, yeah. I, I don't think you should do that. I'm not a fan of the magic camera oh, stuff. But there was a version of magic camera in this that having said all of that, I thought was a really effective tool. And that was, we are on a monitor display with lines and graphics, and we're just going to gently ease in, and it's going to turn into a 100% non-monitor shot. There was like mm. at least a couple. Yes, that but, is true. There was a couple of those. I'm totally fine with that. That's an interesting... I thought of, it was like an interesting piece of cinematography. We kind of fade from his... Mentally in our head, we're fading from... His recording to his actual yeah to his actual self, yeah which is, is totally you know even narratively has makes sense you know it, it, I thought it was valuable I thought it was fun I thought it was a nice uh, a nice thing to do um, yeah. even you can wonder we have this you know view of his monitor for some reason all the hub stuff is in a different z depth and as we push in it actually in 3d pushes so it actually goes out the of, yeah. uh, south the, the edges i thought like i actually thought about that and i thought that doesn't make any sense but it's awesome yeah yeah because you know? the graphics are at the same pixel level right, that the displayed right, video right. is yeah yeah, but it but moving through it, it was a device, and yeah. it's a device like a, a crossfade, right? Yeah. Like a, a dissolve to black. Yeah, like yeah. these are no one expects somebody. I guess people have used that as somebody passing out, but apart from that, there's no literal interpretation of fade to black or or a cross dissolve. It's just yeah. cinema, yeah. and it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was a really good film, and I've got to say, I just it was it's exactly the kind of film I want to go and see. Like it was visual effects, interesting, great acting sense of humor didn't insult the audience i mean it was it was like ridley you know it was like yeah it wasn't aliens in the level that i felt like i just witnessed a moment in time that you know like there's only once in your life that you'll see aliens and that, that you'll suddenly realize that that is a turning point in cinema um or t2 right like where mm -hmm. you go oh my god this is yeah this is the biggest thing ever that being said, yeah, it was one of the best films of the year for me. It was a really yeah, enjoyable. Yeah, and I mean, Ridley totally redeemed for whatever weirdness he was doing with the Prometheus, which was like, what? So, uh, so does that know. make you want to see the next sequel to Prometheus? I'll probably, you know, I have two really movie crazy sons, two and a half. The third one isn't as crazy. We go to a lot of movies, so and by I crazy you mean they love they, they love films. Yeah. They they do make their own films. They do their own visual effects. They're like wild. So we go to like every movie. I, I they know me by first name in the theater in town, you know. So well, Zap, we are filming this week here in Stockholm. We're shooting crazy assed motion control with giant robotic arms. Mark Roberts, the guys that make the, the rigs, um, uh, coming in, especially to pimp them up even more. Um, I'd love you guys to come by. You bring your sons as well. And we're going to be on the soundstage shooting super high-speed skateboarding. Um, but by that, I mean somebody will come off a ramp in, and obviously they would be coming down in real time, but the camera will be moving with them, but shooting at like 1,200 frames a second. So it'll seem like the camera is moving really slowly, though I've actually watched the rig, and the rig flies at a rate that would kill It's one you. of those things that kill you if you're standing Yeah, you, you just can't be anywhere near it, right? right, right. That being said, when so, you watch the shots, 
you know, like they can go from a glass on a table that gets knocked off and track it as it follows all the way down to the ground yeah. and smashes. And it's, uh, I think it's just a beautiful piece of cinematography. So we're, we're shooting all that for FXPHA. So you should definitely have, uh, a, I don't know if your kids are free, but if they are, they should come by and check yeah. it out. Interesting. The third kid is a skateboarder, so I might need to bring all of them. Oh, okay. Well, that's really good because we have one of the world's greatest uh, skateboarders. Uh, actually, I think he is now world number one. Um, but uh, who's going to be? But all of that's going to be happening over at uh, FX. Uh, well, both FX Guide and FX PhD. But we're filming it for classes for uh, FX PhD because we're doing some really cool nuke stuff with um, with deep compositing. Which actually, I was surprised. I, I would have thought they might have done deep on this film because of all the volumetrics mm -hmm. around the, but they didn't. Um, a lot of that stuff in the in the storm, by the way, was actually uh, giant fans shooting stuff. That was I mean, the only time they actually did have visors on, so they didn't get like wiped out. And um, they were on a soundstage, one of the largest in the world, in like I'm going to say uh, the Eastern Bloc somewhere. And um, yeah, huge lights off in the far distant corner to try and get a parallel light source. And uh, but yeah, they had green screen there, but of course for the storm, they had to turn the green screen off because it would just never work. So it was black. They shot it in stereo with the cameras wrapped up in glad wrap, as it were, and then uh, or uh, cling wrap, as the Americans would call it. And then they um, introduced extra um, stuff in front of camera. But uh, yeah, deep compositing and being able to do volumetrics with that is just something that. I mean, Weta now, and not that Weta was on this, uh, but Weta can't render stuff without deep. Like it's so ingrained in their pipeline. You do a lot of work up here in uh, Europe and stuff, and obviously in America. Um, in your capacity, is Deep adopted by many people? Uh, it's an expensive but very clever yeah, process. I don't. I honestly have to plead the fifth on that. I don't know uh, how, how well that is uh, used. I don't have so much contact, contact with the visual effects style over here. Uh, Europe. I have a bunch of friends that work uh, in these places, but uh, we normally talk about other things than deep compositing when we talk, so I, I don't know. What is the hot topic in the CG world at the moment? Uh, there's a lot of hot topics in the CG world. Uh, you know, uh, rendering, of course, will always go. We want it faster and better and, and cooler and nicer. Is and spectral rendering on people's radar yet? Because Maxwell's been doing it for a while, the yeah. does it at um, Weta. I actually think it's really interesting, but for things like caustics and um... yeah, I don't know. I spectral is interesting because uh, you know if you can get these cheap diffraction gratings, uh, which you can look through yeah. and you can see yeah. like the rainbow. I think you even sent me one. Yeah, I think I, I might have done that. Yeah, so. Um, it's pretty cool. You see the spectra. You realize that, like, I had had two different monitors uh, on my desk, and realized that white on one and white on the other, even though they look the same to me, yeah. are two completely different spectra. So we kind of realize how crappy we as human beings are to seeing these things. Yeah. Now yeah. the big question Incredibly is incredibly bad at color, aren't we? Yeah. Great at luminance. Right. So the question is. How important is that? And I'm not sure, like, the jury is really home. There are particular cases where it is important. Like, my, my wife works in lighting design and stuff like that. And, like, if you have a meat counter in a store, oh, yeah. you need particular lights which, yep. you know, has the peak which bounces off the hemoglobin in the meat and make it red. And there's actually even certain 
lights you're not allowed to use because it makes the red the meat look too good so there are actually laws against them and wow. uh, so you have to have the good lights but you can't have the two good lights because they're illegal or I, I don't know the details or whatever so there are particular cases where spectral does matter but is it something you couldn't just solve like oh i'm rendering a meat counter so i will up the saturation on my meat and it'll give you know the same result will does it matter is there a practical case where this really 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 matters which you couldn't like cheat around in some classic RGB way. I, I, I really don't have a good answer for that. I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? Like you got a film like The Martian and you say, like we can geek out on, on spectral rendering, whatever. You, then you got to come back to the realities. Like, is there a shot in The Martian, for example, that would have benefited from whatever it is that we're talking about? I mean, in my case, with Deep Comp, it's a volumetric thing. Mm -hmm. It's very good for placing things in a space and a stereo show cares a lot about where things are in a in a 3d space it's not a fake right you can't just get a a, a flat card of dust and stick it in there and make the shot look great because it doesn't work in stereo so i think it's got a valid role I, I don't know that i could tell you that there's any shot in the martian that would have been better had they been using a spectral renderer I, no i i doubt that there was no shots of people at meat counters in a, yeah. a store there <laughs> yeah, they wish <laughs> All right. Well, it's been absolutely terrific having you on the show again. Thank you so much. Um, for those people that uh, are keen to, uh, where are you at with blogs and the sites? Ah, uh, yes, the famous blog. I keep I keep promoting the blog, and we keep forget to write to write stuff on it. It's just as much my fault as anybody else's. Well, hang on a second. Let's be clear about when you say we. I'm, yeah. I'm not included in this, right? No, it's no, no, no. That, the, the other we. This yeah. is my team. The uh, royal work, we. The, the, no, well, the, the, the team we, where I work in the rendering team in 3D Studio Max part at Autodesk. That's what I do. And we do have things we probably should have put on the blogs, like little details like uh, we wrote a new renderer because it's fun to write renderers. So people that want to play with this can actually get it uh, out as a technology preview available for 3D Studio Max. It's tentatively named ART, which I guess might stand for Autodesk Ray Tracer. I don't know. It probably won't be the final name. It's a name we call the... the, the so what's the, what's the reason that I would want to use this render other than I'm playing so it? So the, the technology preview we have, we, what we want to do with 3D Studio Max is to do more features that are a little bit more rendering agnostic. So the, there's a feature, but it's not a feature for a particular renderer like we've done in the past. We've done, there's a thing, there's a mental ray, blah, 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 that does something and there's a whatever. We want to do something that is more agnostic and we also want to move into more physically based rendering. And we have internally at Autodesk this renderer, which is actually written here in Sweden by the team in, in Gothenburg. Um, the, re the, the technically internal name is RapidRT, is what the renderer is called. Uh, when we basically put this into Max to have this as like a base thing uh, that is our physically based rendering that we'll build everything from. And it's also, we're actually improving the API for how you put the renderer into Max. So we kind of use this as an eat our own dog food kind of thing. Let's use our own new API to see how good it is to put an actual renderer in there 
so all this is available as a technology preview. There's also a cloud component to all this where you can actually render in the cloud and whatnot. So if you go to Art Render Lab, not labs, artrenderlab.autodesk.com, uh, it's actually possible to sign up uh, if you're a Max user and you have Max uh, 2016, the latest uh, version, and you can download and um, play play around with this. It, it's a it's a technology preview, um, so we're not promising this will. You but know, I'm, I'm really glad there. to hear yeah. that you're sciencing the shit out of it. We're sciencing the shit out of this. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, you guys, of course, can follow me uh, at uh, Mike Seymour on Twitter. I've also got an Instagram account, um, and I'm going to be posting uh, a whole bunch of stuff from this shoot, and I'll be posting it on the blog that's on FX PhD. It also appears in the bottom corner or the right-hand side of FX Guide. Um, but I'd totally encourage you guys to um, follow along and see the stuff we're doing with the guys here at uh, Stiller Studios. They're just awesome. And, um, oh, my God, like, I, I, I don't want to sound like I haven't done it yet, but by the time you hear this, you should be able to be posting some stuff. I believe we have multiple motion control rigs so that our making of will be with a massive, incredibly expensive, incredibly cool, high-speed uh, motion control rig. So if it, I mean, look, you know, I'll obviously have GoPros and I've got tons of other stuff to do behind the scenes, but it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to have a motion control rig, shooting a motion control rig, shooting a cool skateboarder. Um, so, yeah, uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy that. And uh, it's just terrific to be able to bring this to everyone uh, at FX PhD. That's it for this week. Um, Zap, thank you so much for, uh, for dropping by. Thank you. And uh, hopefully you guys will catch us. Uh, we've got some great stuff coming up. And, of course, later in the year, um, the space epic of all epics uh, returns to the big screen with uh, Star Wars. Maybe I'll get you back for that one, my friend. Sounds like a plan. Talk to you later, Scott. Thanks. Okay, bye. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com.